The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to be with you tonight as we conclude our series in the book of Esther. We'll conclude this last episode now in the story of redemption, the story of God's act of protection, preservation, and salvation of his people uh, in the the land of Persia. Last week, you may remember that we saw uh, Esther stand before this capricious king, Ahasuerus, uh, identify herself with her people, beg for mercy and protection as their mediator, and then see the king uh, grant permission for a letter of protection to be sent out to the Jews around the kingdom. And tonight we'll see the result of Esther and Mordecai's efforts on behalf of God's people under the direction of God's providence. We have a lengthy passage to cover tonight, uh, covering Esther chapters 9 and briefly the few verses of chapter 10. I'm going to read the majority of this, uh, skipping just a few verses that uh, I'll indicate to you. Uh, But if you'd uh, begin with me at chapter 9, verse 1, and read along uh, with me in the story. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. If you just skip down with me then to verse 16, uh, and those verses we'll skip over, uh, the killing is repeated the next day in Susa, and 300 more are killed, uh, and the sons of Haman are hung on gallows. But pick up with me now in verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another." 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the day on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Skip down again to uh, verse 29 as the verses in the meantime recap the action. We pick up in verse 29 again. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to you for giving your word to us. Your word of truth, which as you have promised, does not go forth void, but brings forth fruit in our hearts and our lives to the glory and praise of Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This is a text that bursts forth with joy, with victory, with enthusiasm, celebration. It's a story of going from defeat to victory. From the expectation of loss to the expectation of uh, the reality of gain. From anxiety to relief, from danger to security. It's a story of God bringing about the salvation of his people. But despite these exciting themes, this text might seem uh, a bit unusual or perhaps even a bit unnerving. After all, we read that the celebration that the Jews hold is because they have slaughtered 500 men in the citadel of Susa. And they repeat it the second day. 300 more men are killed in Susa. And then across all the land, 75,000 men are slaughtered on the hands of the Jews. Isn't this a bit vengeful? Did Mordecai's edict, which we read last week, really need to read that the Jews could kill, attack, annihilate any of their enemies, women and children included, and loot all of their goods? Perhaps it would be one thing if we saw in this text God coming to Mordecai and saying, Mordecai, issue this decree, but we don't have those words in the text. It's Mordecai issuing this decree. And so as we come to this reality of seeing God's people slaughter 75,000 plus people, the question ought to arise, is this just an act of vindictive vengeance? How should we understand this text and how do our lives as believers fit into this narrative? In order to answer this question, I'd like to approach it from two different angles tonight. First, I'd like to look at the overall story and its place in the course of the history of God redeeming his people. And then secondly, I'd like to look at the character of God's people in this story and how they respond to what's happening. So let's start first. Uh, How does this story fit into the larger narrative, the larger context 
of what God is doing for his people. And we think back over the history of God's people, the idea of the Israelites killing their enemies should not seem unique to us. In Numbers, uh, thinking back to the people as they come out of Exodus, the kings Sihon and Og are defeated, and the text tells us that they were uh, defeated until there were no survivors left. In Joshua, uh, Israel crosses the Jordan and wipes out Jericho. They wipe out Ai and, and other uh, cities and, and nations in Canaan. In First Samuel, Saul is told to utterly wipe out the Amalekites uh, and their king. In other words, the Israelites are not just any old people in the Old Testament, but repeatedly we see the Israelites used as God's instruments of judgment on evil and of bringing justice to the nations. One commentator has put it this way. He said that Israel in the Old Testament functions as the human equivalent to the fire and brimstone from heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Although God does not speak directly in the text here to Esther to command this killing, Esther absolutely needs to be seen in light of this history of God's people being used to execute God's judgment on the evil and the wickedness of the nations. There are at least three reasons briefly why this narrative of Exodus fits into this overall picture of God bringing justice upon evil in the nations. First, Way back in Exodus, the Amalekites tried to stand in the way of Israel as they crossed from Egypt to Canaan. And God, in response, not only gave Israel victory over the Amalekites, but he made this promise. He said, in the future, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from heaven. Now God, as you may remember, came to Saul and tasked Saul with this duty, that he would finish this job in in wiping out the Amalekites. Unfortunately, Saul failed to obey him and did not wipe out Agog, the king of the Amalekites. If you think back over the story of uh, Esther here, you'll remember that Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of the very Amalekite king that Saul had failed to kill. And so the first reason why this needs to be viewed in light of God's using his people to bring justice on these nations is that Haman and, the, and, and his descendants and the people that he is leading are part of these Amalekite people that God had ordered to be wiped out. This story then is part of the continuing work of God to wipe out a sinful people who had opposed God's people from generation to generation. But secondly, I want to note a very important point in the text that it's easy to gloss over. The Jews in this chapter are not wreaking passionate vengeance upon their enemies in sort of this uncontrolled bloodbath. In fact, they are measured and self-controlled and very pointed in their response. Mordecai's edict, if you remember, was very broad and permissive. You can kill, you can destroy, you can annihilate women and children, you can steal and plunder all the goods of, of your enemies. And yet, on the 13th and 14th of Adar, the text is very careful to note that the Jews do not carry this edict out to its full extent. If you'll note uh, in verse 10, and again in verse 15, and again in verse 16, the text repeats over and over that although the Jews did kill their enemies, they took no spoil. They took no plunder. They took no plunder. See, this is, the Jews don't even go to the full extent that, that the edict allowed them to. This was a very focused and self controlled response as God's people to execute God's judgment. 
So that's the second reason why this needs to be viewed not as sort of an emotional response of vengeance, but uh, a carrying out of God's commands for judgment. And finally, I just want to note that the text tells us that all who wanted could join the Jews. Note that the governors, the satraps, the rulers of the land came over to the Jews' side when this edict was given. The focus is not on non-Jews, but on those who opposed the Jews, were enemies of the Jews, and were seeking to wipe out, destroy, and kill the Jews. Those were the ones who gathered on the 13th and 14th of Adar. So this is not a sort of um, uh, bloodbath where the the Jews can sort of carry out and uh, murder on on anyone who's not a Jew or on anyone they deem uh, part of their enemies. This is uh, an opportunity for them to carry out God's judgment on the people who gathered to kill them on these few days. I think what this shows us, it's important to understand that here God is graciously identifying his interests with the interests of his people. So that those who oppose God's people are opposing God himself. And that is why the Jews are tasked with carrying out God's judgment here. It's worth remembering that when Assyria had sent Sennacherib to attack Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah foreshadowed this very truth when he asked, Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib did not come to fight Israelites. They came to fight the God of Israel. And so God responds by using his people to justly bring judgment on his enemies. It's worth a brief comment to to note what a comfort this ought to be, that God identifies his interests with the interests of his people. Those who oppose God's people are opposing God himself, precisely because he has chosen to identify himself with you with me, with his people. His interests are your interests. His glory is your life. God has identified himself with his people. And we see that brought out in the text here. And this truth also offers further confirmation that when the Jews specifically fight against the enemies, they are not acting in selfish vengeance, but carrying out God's justice. Of course, even if we acknowledge that Here in Esther, Mordecai and the Jews are bringing about God's justice and holy war. There can still be some unease with the idea that a a people are given permission to to kill, to murder, to wipe out. After all, if if someone wanted to come in and oppose us as, as believers and maybe even want to kill us, if we rose up and slaughtered 75,000 people in response, most, of, most, most people would not applaud that as a, as a wonderful act of, of ours. Why is it um, that the God who in the New Testament seems to talk about praying for our enemies and, and turning the cheek is here commanding his people to wipe out 75,000 of his enemies? Is there some underlying change that has happened in, in, in God here? And of course the answer is no, there is not. But in an age dominated by meetings of the United Nations and concern for world peace, it's understandable why some may question why God can use people to destroy his enemies here on earth. What we want to understand here is that God using people to to bring judgment and justice on his enemies, God killing and ending the lives of those who are wicked, is not an anomaly in the Old Testament. Rather, that is a pattern that we will see throughout the history of God's work on earth. The exception is not God bringing judgment on the peoples of the earth, The exception is that now, 
in this age of the gospel, God has, as Peter says, delayed his judgment so that people will come to life. 2 Peter 3 says that the lack of God's active judgment to deliver his wrath and destroy sinners does not mean he has stopped judging sin. Rather, Peter says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, says Peter, he follows this up by saying, The day of the Lord will come, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. should not be embarrassed or or squirmy about God's judgment that is wreaked on the nations in the Old Testament. Rather, we should be thankful that God has given us an age where the gospel is going forth and his spirit is calling people to himself, even as we wait for the final and climactic moment of judgment that is still to come. God's active justice to judge, destroy, and punish all people and all nations who oppose him is not over. In fact, the greatest chapter in this story of justice and judgment is still to come. The New Testament certainly gives us a picture that is very similar to Esther chapter 9. In Revelation 19, when uh, God gives us a, a picture of the great marriage feast of the Lamb that we as believers look toward as a, a picture of our communion with God, in the verses that immediately follow the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has written on him a name that no one knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. God's judgment and justice on evil and bringing judgment on nations who oppose him in wickedness is not something of the past to be ashamed of. It is something also to the future that urges us to call people to the only escape from this judgment that we have in Jesus Christ. A great day of wrath is still coming, and there is here for us a great caution. Regardless of our background, if, if you, if I, are here in the pews in this church tonight, whether you've sat in the pews your whole life or whether you're here for the first time, if you are sitting here not resting on, clinging to, holding to the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, if we're not crying out with the hymn writer, not what my hands have done, Not what my toiling flesh has borne. Not what I feel or do. Not all my prayers and sighs or tears. But thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O Christ, not my love to you, O God, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. If this is not our cry, if this desperate clinging to Christ Jesus is not our cry, then the slaughtering of 75,000 Persians is just a prelude to the slaughter that we will be included in if the blood of Jesus Christ is not our hope to which we cling. 
I remember uh, as a child, I loved collecting baseball cards. And as an eight or nine-year-old, I was given a camera for Christmas. This was back when you had to use things called film to help you develop your pictures. I had a brilliant idea that I would take a picture of each of my baseball cards and then I could trade that baseball card away for another one and I'd still have the picture to remind me of the original. And then I'd have twice as many baseball cards. As you can guess, this didn't work out this way because as I traded away my cards, I was left not with a baseball card but with a mere picture that reminded me of the card and a desire that said, I wish I still had that card. What we have here in Esther is a picture of the greater judgment that God is about to bring. And it's a picture that ought to make us long for that great day of judgment and salvation if we are in Christ. And it is a picture that ought to make us flee all the more eagerly, all the more quickly to our Savior Jesus as we anticipate this judgment. Let's look back to the text of Esther 9 now. And we know that when the Jews had finished their two days of slaughter, when 75,800 people are lying dead, their response was to announce a festival of praise and of thanksgiving, of gladness, of rejoicing. Their response was to announce this festival of thanks to be celebrated each year forever to the praise of God for their salvation. We can certainly understand something of the joy and the relief that the Jews must have been feeling. They thought they were going to get killed and annihilated by their enemies, and instead, they received salvation. See what chapter 9 says in the first verses, the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred, and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Our joy is so much greater when we experience a reversal of expectations. Maybe you've had experiences like we have, where we're anticipating a large bill to come, and we realize we misunderstood our insurance statement, and that bill's not coming. The joy is all the greater because it's a reversal of expectation. This past week, my baseball team, clinging to playoff hopes, losing in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs, a game-winning home run saves them from defeat. The reversal of expectation leads to even greater rejoicing. And here in the text, the Jews' rejoicing must have been all the greater given the reversal of their expectations. But we as Christians need to remember that the hope that we have in Christ is the greatest reversal of appropriate expectations that anyone can have. If we understand the true nature of our sin that has struck us to the core of our being so that the only expectation we ought to have is that of judgment, That is the only expectation we have to have. And yet, here comes Christ. Living, dying, rising for us. Our lives ought to overflow with joy and gladness for this reversal and expectation in the face of death comes life at the hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May our praise be all the greater. May we never forget that we sit here, sinners, knowing what our sins deserve. And may we cling to Christ in the confidence of his promise of life and hope in our Savior. This is where we fit as believers in this picture of of, of Christ's overall plan of redemption. This story is a prelude, a picture of the climactic day of judgment where God will strike down his enemies, 
but we, in a great reversal of expectations, have hope of salvation due to God's work through Christ Jesus. That's where we fit into the picture that this story uh, is part of, is part of God's plan of redemption. So that's what I wanted to look at first. Second, let's take a look at three ways that the Jews in this story demonstrate the character of God that ought to be evident in our lives as well. Three things that ought to characterize us as we seek to live out our lives in this story as the Jews here in Persia did. First, the Jews, called on to do God's work, exercise self-control as they do so, and so glorify God by their faithful obedience. I don't think we can emphasize strongly enough the significance of the fact that Mordecai's decree giving carte blanche to the Jews to kill, annihilate, destroy, plunder, signed by the king of Persia, allowed the Jews not only to kill, but also to take anything from any one of their enemies that they wanted. And the temptation to lay hands on the plunder must have been great. I know that because of my own tendencies. If there is material possession to be had that can enrich myself and the the law allows a a loophole to do that, I'm going to go for it. Or think biblically. Think back to another case of plunder. When Achan, after Jericho, told not to take the plunder, but there sat the plunder. And Achan took that plunder and was punished by God for his disobedience. The temptation must have been great. Here is free stuff to increase their wealth, which the edict even allows. And yet, verse 10, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 15, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 16, they laid no hand on the plunder. See, taking the plunder would have clouded the clarity and the purpose of what the Jews were doing. They were not out to enrich themselves. They were not out to get some sort of cathartic vengeance on their enemies. They were out to fulfill God's purposes of bringing judgment on God's enemies. And self-control that the text emphasizes three times in six verses keeps their actions and perhaps more importantly their hearts and their focus on what God had called them to do. The message uh, of their culture, and I'm sure the message of our culture, very much does not support a message of self-control. We're told over and over that we should be free to do what we want. We should let loose. We should follow our desires and impulses, whatever those may be. But a lack of self-control is a window into our sinful desires. I'm sure you, uh, like I, have experienced those moments where we know that we shouldn't say something. We have something we want to say. And we know we shouldn't say it. That check of the Holy Spirit is there. And yet we go ahead and say it. Maybe because it's really funny. Maybe because it makes our point really well and that other person just needs to hear our point. Self-control is a window into our sinful desires. The lack of self-control is evidence that we are focused on ourselves and not focused on the will of God and God's calling for our life. We're being swayed by our desires from the focus that we ought to have. You may remember in uh, 1 John chapter 2, when John tells us that we ought to be self-controlled and we ought not follow the desires of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of possessions. See, the purpose is clear. 
following our desires is of the world, as John says. But if we are willing to be self-controlled through the power of the Spirit, by denying these pleasures and temptations and the desires offered to us, we instead keep our focus on the love from the Father, as John says. Of course, self-control is not an end or means in and of itself. Self-control is not a a way to to get salvation by any means. Paul reminds us in Colossians chapter 2 that if, if if our Christian life is one of saying, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, we have a false religion. Self-control is not uh, a means of salvation in and of itself. But self-control is a fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. It is evidence of God keeping us focused on His calling. The Jews' willingness and self-control to bypass the plunder in order to stay focused on God's calling gives us a powerful picture of how we ought to respond when the pleasures and temptations of the world are set in front of us. As Paul notes, self-control is a fruit of God's Spirit at work in us. So may this example of self-control send us running to the Spirit of Christ for strength to deny the pleasures and temptations the world seeks to give us. We may have the strength to focus on God's calling and God's will for our lives. This is the first pattern that the Jews set out for us in this text. But secondly, the Jews demonstrate a proper response to seeing God's salvation in their lives. They respond with a regular and repeated celebration that reminds them continually of God's faithfulness. This is certainly a pattern throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments are reiterated, we're told that God's salvation in bringing the people out from Egypt is a reason why we ought, the Israelites ought to continue to keep the Sabbath day holy. That is a celebration of God's salvation faithfulness. Deborah sings a song of, of thanksgiving and celebration in response to God's salvation. The Passover, another repeated yearly celebration to remember God's salvation. We too have a regular, weekly opportunity to celebrate God's faithfulness in salvation. And that's why we are here tonight. We are here on this day because God has given this day as our regular opportunity to sing the praises and magnify the name and the faithfulness of our God. Remember a few years ago talking with a group of sixth graders. They revealed that they were very anxious to avoid hell, but they weren't very excited about going to heaven. I asked why that would be, and they said, well, is it really going to be very fun to sit through a church service forever? And the response was very telling. And the, the response is that church is something to sit through. It's something to endure. It's something that Christians do or have to do because that's what God seems to have called them to do. But the idea of being in a, in a church service for eternity, my heavens, heaven forbid, that that should be eternity. Hopefully we reject the theology of my sixth graders. But... I wonder if our actions and our approach to our day of celebration don't belie the same theology sometimes. Are we preparing our hearts for worship diligently as we prepare to come into God's presence? Do I look forward to the hours of worship and hold them as precious in my week? Am I distracted from the sermon by various thoughts that are clearly more pressing and more important right now than worshiping my Savior? 
Is my anticipation of Sunday about teaching this lesson or that lesson? Is it about interacting with this person or that person or getting to talk to or, or cover this issue or that issue? All of these may be legitimate concerns, but they all distract us from what this day is about. This day is about the same thing that the Jews had enacted in their Feast of Purim. It is a regular, repeated opportunity for us to celebrate, to give thanks out of gladness for what Christ has done for us in bringing the salvation of his people. I find it interesting in the few verses of Esther chapter 10 that we get a picture of life returning to normal. King Ahasuerus, verse 1, imposes taxes. Life is back to normal. Mordecai is being honored by the people. We get a picture of the acts being recorded in the Chronicles. Life is back to normal. But in the return to the normalcy of life, the Jews do not forget God's salvation. They are left with a pattern for celebrating God's salvation. And I pray that this day of worship will be a day that as life continues in a normal pattern is a day that calls us and returns us to a a remembrance of and a celebration of the salvation which carries us through our normal lives in expectation for the great day of salvation that awaits. Finally, and very briefly, we should take comfort from this narrative that God is at work. We've said this already, we should say it again. God's name is not mentioned here, but it does not mean that God is not at work. This story is absolutely a picture of God sovereignly, powerfully, and victoriously conquering his enemies, conquering sin, Satan, and evil around him, and bringing salvation to his people. And you are part of this same pattern. You may not wake up tomorrow morning with an agagite ready to kill you. You may not have Haman ready to pass a law for your extermination, but you do face sinful temptations. You are filled with a sinful nature. You are surrounded by a culture and a world that is full of sin and sorrow, and that sin and sorrow, that temptation, that sinfulness is driven by, motivated by, and used by the same enemy who was working through Haman and the Agagites. And the same God who defeated Haman and the Agagites is at work to defeat sin and temptation in you and I, in sanctification, in the world and the culture around us, as he magnifies Christ's name and prepares for the great day of salvation. And so, as we face pain, suffering, sorrow, despair, failure of sin, this God who saved his people is at work saving us as well. So as we look at the Jews in this passage, we see their self-control to stay focused on the will of God for their lives. We see their regular, repeated worship of God in celebration for his salvation. And we see a picture of them looking to God who is at work to win victory over sin and Satan in our lives and in our world for the glory of his name. So we conclude the book of Esther, thankful to our God for its picture of God's sovereignty, of God's salvation, and of God's people that we might glory in God's name. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for this picture, this story, which turns our minds and our hearts towards our own salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray that Jesus would be on our hearts and our minds as we see this story of salvation. That Jesus would be the name that we cling to as we look forward to the day of judgment and salvation. And that Jesus would be the name that we praise now 
and throughout our weeks and throughout our lives as we seek to give thanks out of gladness for what he has done for us. And we pray this to the glory in your name. Amen.